Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so you guys came to a class called Understanding the Ten Commandments. And so I thought I'd start by maybe just asking some questions. Why study the Ten Commandments? A little participation here tonight to start off with. Why do you think we'd spend time studying them? Hi, Carrie. Why, why do you think we'd study the Ten Commandments? The guidelines. Guidelines, okay. That's an interesting word, Jenny. Are they guidelines or are they commandments? <laughs> I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. I'm just throwing that out there. We'll, we'll talk about that. That's good. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that's an interesting way to put it. Okay. Yeah. First and foremost, it's God's commandments. Okay. Let me give you some um, different things to think about. Um, some groups, not a manual, but some evangelical groups actually will say that the Ten Commandments are under the old dispensation and there's nothing, we have nothing to do at all with the Ten Commandments today. They're, they're part of an old old paradigm, it's Old Testament, they're not applicable today. Okay? Some people say the Ten Commandments need to be in public buildings, but when you ask them to recite the Ten Commandments, they can't recite all ten of them, but they sure want them in public buildings because it's going to help criminals to not commit crime. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spends extensive time talking about the Ten Commandments, but He transforms them, gives them new meaning doesn't just fulfill them, but actually transforms them. Okay? God's moral law does not change. The Ten Commandments were written in stone with God's finger, and we'll talk about that. So we need to figure out how to respond to them. <coughs> Would you agree that there's a lack of holiness in the church today? Okay? Do you think there's an ignorance about... God's standards among God's people. Okay. So there's a lot of reasons why we would study the Ten Commandments. And so the first question I want to begin with, and this is a question a lot of people have asked me over the years, do you want to know God's will for your life? I've had numerous people come into my office, Pastor Sean, can you tell me God's will for my life? <laughs> Let me get out my crystal ball and figure it out. No. So... Let me just ask the question, do you want to know God's will for your life? If you're a Christian, all of us should say, okay. So in your Bibles, before we get, we're not even going to get to the Ten Commandments. We're not even going to get to the First Commandment until next week. So tonight's all introduction. But turn to Deuteronomy 29, 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29. And it's a very interesting passage of Scripture here that talks about God's will. Two different types of God's will, if you will. So Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. 
The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now, this passage of Scripture teaches two truths about God's will. Number one, what does that first half of verse 29 tell us? The secret things belong to the Lord. So here's truth number one. God has a hidden or a secret will that He sovereignly and meticulously works out that you can't see. He keeps it to Himself. So there are some things about God's will that are being worked out in your life right now that you may not even be aware of until maybe you look back. Now, are you supposed to try to figure out God's secret will for your life? No. But what does Romans 8.28 tell us? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So God, in a sense, is accomplishing His secret will in your life, whether you know it or not, but that's not your business, is it? So a lot of people say, what's God's will? Like, what's God's will for my life? And they want to try to figure out this secret will and all these different things. And sometimes God just doesn't tell you. Okay, what's the second half of the verse tell us? Here's truth number two. Okay, God has a secret sovereign will that he's working out that he doesn't tell you what he's doing. But no, truth number two, God has a revealed will that he has given us in his word so that we can obey him. What's the second half of that verse say? But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words in this law. What has God revealed to us? His written word. So if you want to know the will of God, ultimately you go to the scriptures to find that out. Micah 6, 8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So before we understand the Ten Commandments, we need to understand that God has revealed to us in His Word His will, that we would do it. So it's not a secret. If somebody comes to me and says, says, I really want to know God's will for my life, what would be the best answer to tell them? Go read your Bible over and over and over again until you understand. Now, that's a trite answer. I wouldn't say that to somebody that came to me. I wouldn't just say, go read your Bible. But a lot of times people are trying to find out this mystical... Here's the thing that happens a lot of times. Not a lot of times. This has happened over the years to me as I have counseled with people. Somebody will come into my office... And they will sit down with me and they will say, I really want to know God's will for my life, Pastor Sean. I really am struggling. I want to know God's will. And I know he's got a plan for me and I know he's got a will for me. And I really want to obey his will. And so I begin to ask questions. Hey, guys, I begin to ask questions about their lifestyle. And come to find out they're cheating on their husband. They're going to Vegas and getting drunk. They're gambling all their money away, they're 
they're in child pornography. No, I'm, not, I'm just saying they're doing all these evil things. I'm not, not to that extreme. They're doing all these evil things, and yet they want to know God's will for their life. And I stop and say, listen, before you can start on the path of understanding God's particular will for your life, you need to get down just what He's revealed to you as far as His regular will. And once you start doing that, then you'll be able to understand some other things. So we've got to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 to understand God's law. Because we're talking about the Ten Commandments. Before the Ten Commandments, God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden. And I don't know if you know this or not, but God gave them a command. Before the Ten Commandments, there was the original command. So go in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Look at verse 16. Genesis 2, 16. I'll write it up here on the board because I don't know if the actual reference is on your sheet. Genesis 2, 16. The Lord God, what does your Bible say? Commanded the man, Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That's a commandment, is it not? God's giving Adam and Eve instructions, a commandment, His Word from the very beginning. So we need to understand the significance of the two trees in the center of the garden. What are the two trees? There's the tree of life, and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what does God command Adam that he's not to eat of? You cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, what's the penalty if they if you eat of it? Okay, so is there a command and a stipulation? What's the command? Don't eat. What's the consequence? You will surely die. Is that a commandment? Okay. So before anything's written on stone, before you have the Ten Commandments, um, before even sin enters the world, has sin entered the world yet? God is giving commands. This is the very first time God gives a command in the Bible. Now, is this command unreasonable? Because they were free to, to eat of any tree other than the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't like God was being stingy and holding out on them. God said, you're free to eat everything in this garden except for this one tree. Now, what was the tree of knowledge of good and evil? There's a lot of debate about that. And I don't want to necessarily go into all the debates about that. Let me just kind of give you my opinion. And again, I may be wrong on this. Um, I believe that the tree of knowledge of good and evil means that they would gain wisdom to obey God through His own revelation and on His timetable and on His terms. In other words, God sets the rules on how they were to learn to obey and love and worship Him. They would get it through His revelation and not on their own terms. What I think God was saying was, listen, I'm going to teach you the knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to teach you my will. I'm going to teach you right from wrong, but I'm going to do it my way. And it comes through walking with me through a relationship. Not this quick, easy, go eat this tree and then try to figure it out. Um, Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So, they were to fear the Lord 
in the garden, walk with God in the garden, learn from God in the garden, obey God in the garden, have fellowship with God in the garden. So Adam and Eve were to obedient to God. They were to pursue wisdom through obedience to Him and through His own revelation and word and not through their own experimentation on their own terms. This knowledge of good and evil or spiritual wisdom comes in worship and fearing the Lord, not in independent or autonomous experimentation, but upon reliance of God and how He's chosen to reveal His will. Now let me just stop right there. How many people experiment with what they want to do to try to figure things out? As opposed to, everyone, okay, as opposed to, now Adam and Eve had a privilege, did they not? They got to walk with God in the garden and hear His direct voice. We have the privilege of, of just having the written word to us. And so Adam and Eve were to worship God, to learn from God. They were not to experiment on their own. They were to do things the way God told them. So here's what the knowledge of, of good and evil, that tree, represents. I think the tree of knowledge of good and evil represents the difference between trusting in our own understanding and knowledge instead of trusting in the revealed Word of God. What does Proverbs 3, 5, and 7 say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Now, I'm going to introduce a term to you that you may not be familiar with, but it's been around in church history for a long time. And this is just what theologians call it, for lack of a better word, but it's called the covenant of works. The covenant of works. So what is the covenant of works? Well, it's a covenant. Do you guys know what a covenant is? A covenant in the Bible is a solemn agreement or, or, or a binding agreement or relationship between two parties where there are commands and stipulations, blessings and curses. So, is this a covenant between God and Adam? Yes. What is the covenant? What does God tell Adam? What's the stipulation? Don't eat. That's the, that's the covenant, right? Don't eat. If you eat, what's the, what's the consequence? Death, okay? So God enters into a covenant with Adam, and what was Adam required to do in this covenant? Obey. Adam had to obey the commandment of God. Because God commanded him. Yes, Dick. And he only had one commandment. Yes. Just one. Just one. Not ten. Yeah, not ten. One thousand. Yeah, just one. One, one commandment. And uh, that doesn't mean that if the relationship was to continue, God wouldn't direct him in some other ways sure. in the future. But only had one commandment. Yeah. How many trees were in the garden? I yeah. bet you there were thousands of trees yeah. in the garden. Yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> So in this covenant of works, God comes to Adam, gives him a command, obey me by not eating of the tree. If you don't obey me, you will surely die. But I think Adam had his fingers crossed behind his back. His fingers crossed behind his back that, that he wouldn't die? Well, no, that, that because he, he maybe said yes to God, but he 
Oh, he said, I'll obey you with his fingers crossed behind his back. Like, I don't really intend to do that. Is that in Genesis uh, 2a or something? Okay. In between chapters 2 and 3? Okay. Yeah. Genesis according. So in the covenant of works, we see here that Adam serves as the representative for the entire human race. Okay. He's the only human at this point except for his wife Eve. So he, as the head of his family, as the first one created, he's the representative of the entire human race. And so God enters into a covenant with Adam that's somewhat legally binding with conditions. What are the conditions that God places on Adam? He's got to pass the test of obedience and not eat of the tree. If he does, he dies. Now, why is this called a, whoops. But honestly, it's kind of one-sided. It is one-sided. Yeah. Sort of. Because Adam never says that he's going to do it. Okay, Adam never says he's going to. But let's just talk about that, Glenn. If God gives a command, by the very fact that God gives the command, is it not implied that you would <laughs> obey it? Now, you can choose to say, I'm not going to obey it. But that's probably not very wise, is it? <laughs> yeah, you'll die. So here's the thing. If Adam passes the test, he can enjoy eternal life with God in his upright state. If he fails the test, then he plunges not only himself, but the entire human race into rebellion and sin against God. Okay? Now, why is this called a covenant of works? Why do theologians and church historians call it a covenant of works? Well, it's conditioned upon Adam's obedience or his works. Okay, is this grace? Is God giving him grace here? Or is it more something Adam has to do? It's something Adam has to do. It's a covenant of works. Adam, as our representative, would find blessing in eternal life based upon obedience and works. He would find a curse and death if he did not obey. And we find out that it's somewhat of a covenant of works or a covenant because the book of Hosea mentions in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, God's talking to Israel, the nation, but he says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Adam, when he sinned, transgressed the covenant. So what do we know had happened when Adam sinned? Did he obey? Did he break the covenant? Did he break the stipulations? What was the penalty? Okay, did he die immediately? Okay. But he died physically later on, though. But then was there somewhat of a spiritual type of death? Okay. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 5, 12, Paul gives a commentary on what happened when Adam broke the covenant. Romans 5, 12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world, how? Through one man, that one man, Adam. And what happened? Death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So here's something we need to understand, very important about what Adam did. Because Adam was our federal head or our representative, because of Adam, every one of us is born under the covenant of works. In the sense that we're guilty, we're hardwired to somehow want to earn our salvation by being a good person or through trying hard to follow the rules. Okay? We are born sinful 
but we're also born with this idea that somehow I can save myself or I can do enough good. So, yes, Jerry. Yes. In, Gen in Romans 5.12? Yes. Nope. You're getting into a very, very big, deep theological question that books and books have been written on. Okay. Romans 5.12, it splits the Augustinians versus the Pelagians. Versus, there's a big, but it, technically in the Greek it says because all sinned. Okay. Now, we could go on that tangent if you want. <laughs> Let me just give you the shorthand. In a sense... When Adam sinned, we were, in a sense, there with him, not physically, but in a spiritual sense, committing that. If we would have been there, we would have committed that sin also. And so our sin, we're guilty not only for Adam's original sin that he committed, but we're also guilty for our own sins. And so the point is, because of Adam, all of us are born into the world guilty, sinful, hardwired to want to somehow earn our salvation. And so the Bible talks about Jesus being the second Adam, the perfect man. That's why we need Jesus Christ to come and live the life we could never live and die the death we all deserve to die so that we could have restored fellowship with God. So here's the, here's the point that I'm trying to make before we even get to the Ten Commandments. That God gave His law before sin entered the world. The law of God was given as a realistic expectation for human behavior for Adam and Eve even before the fall. That's important. God didn't set up His law in response to Adam and Eve sinning. God gave them law before they even sinned. Now the point is Adam couldn't keep it, could he? And we'll talk about that. Okay? So something you've got to keep in mind here. Just because God gives a law, number one, doesn't mean we can keep it. But number two, just because we can't keep it doesn't mean that God lowers the standard on the law. Does that make sense? Okay. So with that being said, let's turn now to Exodus chapter 19. Because I want to give you... Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments are. So we're going to be hanging out in Exodus 20, but Exodus 19 is the setup. So we need to understand Exodus 19 before we actually get into Exodus 20. So I'm going to read all of, well, I'll read most, well, let's, how, do, how do we want to break this up? Let's do verses 1, well, I'll just read until I feel like we need to stop. How about that? Okay, so Exodus chapter 19, everybody there? On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, that's Mount Sinai, or sometimes called Horeb. Just a side note, in the Bible, this is just, when you're reading your Old Testament, Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb, that's the same mountain. It just has two different names. Okay, so... In Exodus, it's called Mount Sinai. Later on, when you get into like Isaiah and the prophets, somehow it's called Horeb. So I just don't want you to be confused. All right, verse 3. While Moses went up to God, 
the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay, I want to stop right there. Verse 4 is what we call the preamble or the introductory setup about God's saving grace to Israel. What is verse 4? What's the imagery that we see there in verse 4? God bore them on eagles' wings and brought them to Himself. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. I brought you to Myself. This is the only time this wording is used in the Old Testament. This whole idea of God bringing a people to Himself. Boring them on eagles' wings. So the focus here is not so much on location, but on relationship. Okay. Go over just to chapter 20, verse 22. Um, why do I have 22? Uh, just hold that thought. I have the wrong scripture. Don't worry about that. Think about eagle's wings for a moment. What's the image of an eagle? God powerfully, majestically carries the nation on his back, brings them to himself. What does an eagle do to an eaglet? Takes those big wings and folds them into himself to protect him. That's the image God's saying is, listen, you guys were in Egypt. You were under harsh taskmasters. I brought you on eagle's wings to myself. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about that because God repeats it. But what does God say about himself in verse 5? God reminds them of His sovereign authority. What does God say to them in verse 5? Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you should be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. All the earth is mine. So God is the creator of all people. All the earth is mine. But... He announces His special covenant love with His people Israel. What does He call them? You will be my treasured possession. Okay. Now, let's go real quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm going to have you turn over there just for a moment. Because, yeah, Deuteronomy 7 actually... Yeah, read Deuteronomy 7, 6-11. I got the note in there. Deuteronomy 7, 6-11. This language here of God calling Israel a treasured possession. Deuteronomy 7, 6-11. Okay, God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, 
the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and statutes and the rules that I command you today. What's God saying to Israel? I am choosing you. It's not because you're all that. It's not because you're worthy. Why does God choose Israel? Why did God choose Israel? Because He wanted to. That's a good enough answer for me. Now, let's talk about us as believers. Why does God choose us? Is it because we're all that? Is it because we deserve it? We can say God chose us. I don't know why God chose us, but He chose us because He wanted to. And He loves us. And He wanted to set His affection upon us. So God calls them a treasured possession. Interesting wording, treasured possession. In 1 Chronicles 29.3, when David is talking about his own personal treasure, Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own, of gold and silver, because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. David's talking about his own personal private treasure that he's going to give to the building of the temple. The word translated possession in Exodus, a treasured possession, is the same word used here for David's own private treasury of silver and gold. So think about the imagery here. For David, it was his prized possession. What's God saying about Israel? You are my prized possession. You're my special people. You're my covenant people. I'm entering into covenant love with you. I redeemed you out of slavery. I brought you to myself on eagle's wings. You are my treasured possession. I treasure you. Malachi 3.17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares the son who serves him. Interestingly, in the New Testament, we are called a treasured possession. Titus 2.14, Paul says, Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, a treasured possession. So God tells Israel before, now think about this, chapter 19 comes before chapter 20. Have we gotten to the Ten Commandments yet? It's very important that we get the order right here. What's God telling Israel before He gives them any law? You are mine. I love you. I'm in covenant with you. You're my treasured possession. I have chosen you to be mine it's because I love you. Not because you deserve it, because simply I wanted to set my affection upon you. But then God gives them another attribute or another description. He calls them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Look at verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Two things. So, I'm going to start writing on the board here, okay? A kingdom of what? Priests and a what? Holy nation. Now, first of all, the priests in Israel. Israel had a priesthood. 
The priest in Israel served two functions. Number one, they preached the law of God to the people. They were the ones that communicated the law. They preached the law. They taught the law. They made sure the people understood the law. Secondly, they were instrumental as mediators of a substitutionary blood atonement to propitiate God's wrath against sin. The priests were the ones that would go into the Holy of Holies and actually sacrifice people, uh, animals, for the, the sins of the people. So that's what the priests did. But what does God say to Israel? You're going to be a kingdom of priests. Not just Aaron's family and his sons, but the entire you as an entire nation are going to be a kingdom of priests. Now, what does that mean? What were they going to do as a king? What was their responsibility as a kingdom of priests? What were the two things they had to do? What are the two things the priests did? They preached the word, and they had a blood atonement. As a kingdom of priests, what were the two primary things Israel would have to do? As a nation, we need to make sure that we preach and understand God's word and we understand the need for an atonement. Now let me ask you, has it much changed today? As believers in Jesus Christ, what are we supposed to be important to us? The word is preached and obeyed and we tell people that they need Christ as their atonement. So as a nation... They were to function as those that would spread the word and those that would tell people the need for a substitute through a blood sacrifice. But they were to be a holy nation, holy, set apart, distinct. In addition to being a kingdom of priests, Israel was, was to live out the ethical demands as a holy nation. That is, they were to be different or distinct than the nations around them. And we'll talk about that. That's why God gave them the law. God gave them the law so that they would be distinctly different from the pagan nations around them. Okay? So, what was Israel's overall mission? Maybe you've never thought about Israel's mission. What was their mission? Their mission entailed acting as God's representatives to the nations the pagan nations around them, by what? Reflecting his very character. A character that demanded allegiance to his word and character demanding justice against sin be satisfied by a substitutionary atonement. That's what they were to do. Now, let me give you a quote by John Durham. He's written a, a, a commentary on Exodus. I like what he says here because it's stuck with me what he calls Israel. He says, commentating on this passage, Israel as a kingdom of priests is Israel committed to the extension throughout the world of the ministry of Yahweh's presence. Israel as a holy people are to be a people set apart, different from all other people by what they are and are becoming, a display people, a showcase to the world of how being in covenant with Yahweh changes a people. I love the wording there because he calls them a display people. What does it mean to be a display people? <clears throat> display what? Go ahead, Dick. Reflect. Yes. 
Yes. Israel was to put God's holiness on display. We're called to put God's holiness on display. So their, their identity, Israel's identity, was intrinsically wrapped up in being a holy nation, which was to be a light to the Gentiles. God didn't just save Israel to be their own little nation that didn't have any concern for the nations around them. Now, obviously, there's a difference in the Old Testament. It was more of a come and see. The New Testament's more go and tell. Um, They were never told to go evangelize the nations like the Great Commission. It was more, we're going to be distinctly different and people are going to notice and come to us. But they were to be a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. Now, Doug Stewart has written another commentary, and I I really like what he's done here. So I'm going to give you, this is from him, it's not from me, four ways Israel will live out her identity. I like, so I'm quoting him verbatim here. I'm giving him credit because I really liked what he said about the four things that Israel was to be in being a treasured possession and being a kingdom of, of priests and being a holy nation. So think about these three descriptions. They're a treasured possession. They're a kingdom of priests. They're a holy nation. God says, Israel, this is your identity. Israel, this is your mission. Israel, this is who you are. Okay, so what did that mean? So here's what he said. He said there's four ways they live this out. And this is from uh, Douglas Stewart from his Exodus commentary in the New American Commentary. He said, number one, Israel would be an example, an example to the people of other nations who would see its holy beliefs and actions and be impressed enough to want to know God personally, the same God the Israelites knew. So number one, he says, Israel was going to be an example. Okay, that's number one. Number two, Israel would proclaim the truth of God and invite people from other nations to accept Him in faith as shown by confession of belief and acceptance of His covenant. Okay, so number two, number one, they'd be an example. Number two, they would preach truth. Number three, he says, Israel would worship God by interceding for the rest of the world by offering acceptable offerings to God. Okay, so they would worship, and their worship would involve a blood sacrifice, the sacrificial system, to atone for sin. So they'd be an example to the nations. They would preach the truth to the nations. They would worship God and show the need to have their sins forgiven by a sacrificial system. And then the last thing he says they would do is Israel would keep the promises of God, preserving his word already spoken and recording his word as it was revealed to them so that once the fullness of time had come, anyone in the whole world could promptly benefit from that great body of divinely revealed truth that is the scriptures. So they would uphold the written word, the scriptures. I know my writing's not very good there. Okay, so let's think about... Those four things that 
Israel as a, as a kingdom of priests, as a treasured possession, as a holy nation. God says, and this is from this commentator, but I agree with him. He says, okay, they're going to be an example to the nations. They're going to preach the truth to the nations. They're going to worship God and show the need to have sins forgiven by a sacrificial system. And they're going to uphold the written scriptures. Okay, so let's just ask the $10 million question. If that was Israel's role back in the day, and by extension, we're connected to that, how does this relate to us as a church? Are these same four things important for us? So let's just ask some questions. Number one, are we an example to others in our holiness displaying God's glory to the nations? Pop quiz for those of you that have been paying attention the past 12 years. What's the first part of Emmanuel's mission statement? We exist to display God's glory. We are to be a display people. So number one, we are to be an example. We are to put on display God's glory to a watching world. Individually as Christians and corporately as a church, we're to be an example to the world, the watching world of who God is. Okay, number two. Do we proclaim the truth? Do we preach truth and invite others to come into covenant relationship with Christ? Is that important as a church? To preach the truth, to preach Christ, to invite people to come into relationship with Christ. What's the second part of our mission statement? We exist to display God's glory. We exist to declare God's gospel. Okay, number three. Do we hold fast to the cross and Jesus says the only way for sinners to be reconciled to God, do we pray for lost people? Do we see ourselves as intercessors for a lost world? Do we worship God in such a way that we uphold the cross as central to people's need for salvation? Is that important for the church? Okay. And then lastly, as Israel did, do we continue to preach the written God-breathed scripture so that God's people can continually hear his voice? Do you want to hear the audible voice of God? Read your Bible out loud. Some of you caught that. <laughs> Just read your Bible. Every time you read the Bible, God speaks the written word. Okay? So we're going to discuss this in a moment that the word was written down, but God has called Israel to be this people. So let's go back and read. We're in Exodus 19. Go back and read verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let's read verses 7 through 9, the people's promise to obey. Verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Now just stop and think about that. Do they really know what they're saying? What are they saying to, what are they saying to God? We're, this is before the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments have not been given. Moses comes down and says, all right, we're gonna, we're, God's going to speak. And what do they say before they even find out what God's going to say? Everything you tell us to do, we're going to do. 
Now, in a way, that's good, right? We should have a predetermination to obey God no matter what. But we find out through the rest of the Bible, do they live up to that end of the bargain? <laughs> okay. No, they didn't. So, verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people of the Lord, okay, here we go, the consecration of the people, here's what, here's what they have to do to get ready to receive the Ten Commandments. Verse 10, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai inside of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever even touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Now when he's saying, Do not go near a woman, he's, you know what that means, right? He's not saying, Don't go near Lisa. I'm not going to stand near you. It's a euphemism for, okay, married people for three days, don't have sex, wash your garments, get prepared because God's coming down. And it's going to be an awesome, amazing, powerful display of God's glory. And so the people can't just flippantly go into the presence of the Lord. They've got to get themselves ready because God's coming down from the mountain to speak. Okay? Which shows us about God's holiness. You don't just flippantly... I mean, let's just stop right here for a moment. Do you think sometimes we be, can become a little flippant with God? Now, I know that God is... Let me, let me give you two words here. And, and I know these are kind of bigger words, but I don't know of any other way to explain it. God is imminent. And what do I mean by imminent is... Maybe I'll put a better word. He's very um, close or He's very near. In the sense that, is God close to us? Yes. Is God near? Does the Holy Spirit live in our hearts? Do we, have, do we have direct access to God? Can we pray to God whenever we want to? Do we pray through Christ to, to, to the Father? Yes, we have an intimate, close access to God. We talked about that Sunday morning. But at the same time, isn't God, in a sense, high and lifted up? Isn't He, in a sense, transcendent? He's above us. So yes, he's close, and yes, we can approach him, but at the same time, we're not just walking into the presence of our buddy. Who are we walking into the presence of? Holy God. The holy God. And yes, the beautiful thing about it is, think about this. Without Christ, you could not go into the presence of God. You would be obliterated. So with Christ as your Savior, you have direct access to God, but he's still holy. He doesn't change His holiness at all. We still have access. And so what God's saying to Israel is, listen, you're my treasured possession. I bore you on eagle's wings. You're my special people, but you got to get ready. You're not just going to barge into my presence. You need to get ready to meet me in the way that I'm telling you to meet me. It's going to be a holy time. So get ready. So let's see what happens. Verse 16 through 20. 
On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. You'd probably tremble too. Maybe it looked like a volcano or something. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Is that God is my buddy type moment there? The mountain is shaking. Thunder and lightning and smoke and trumpet and the people are freaked out. Now, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews for a moment. Keep your hand there and keep your hand there in, in Exodus 19, but go back to Hebrews for a moment. And remember, was it last year or two years ago we went through the book of Hebrews? I can't remember, but we two years, I can't remember how long it was. Um, but the writer of Hebrews gives a commentary on this. He talks about this in the New Testament about what happened in Exodus 19. So in Hebrews 12, um, 20, 18 through 29, he's going to tell us, he's going to remind us what happened in Exodus 19. So Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness made perfect, and made perfect into Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and of the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel. Now go down to verse 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is New Testament. God is a consuming fire in the New Testament. God is a consuming fire in the Old Testament. He's holy. And he's going to come down and give his word. So Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments and he's going to be sent back down. So let's back to Exodus chapter 19, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. And warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, and then you go right into chapter 20 where he starts with the Ten Commandments. Okay? So before God gives the Decalogue or the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, Moses is the mediator of this covenant. Okay? 
So Moses goes up and down the mountain three times. He goes up to meet God. He goes back down and tells the people what God says. He goes back up the Ten Commandments, and then God sends him back down to give the Ten Commandments. Okay? So let's jump out of Exodus 19 before we jump into Exodus 20, and let me just talk a little bit about the nature of law, the way that the Old Testament talks about law. Okay? So law-gospel distinction. Okay, the Bible gives two huge categories from Genesis to Revelation. And theologians call it law versus gospel or law-gospel distinction or the difference between law and gospel. So here's the question. What do we mean by law and gospel? What's the distinction between these two in the Bible? Okay. Some people may say, well... Law means everything in the Old Testament. Gospel means everything in the New Testament. That's wrong. Okay? Because you have just as much law in the New Testament and just as much gospel in the Old Testament. Let me give you the definitions here, okay? When the Bible talks about law in the generic sense, it refers to any command from Genesis to Revelation. So when we, when we started tonight and we talked about Genesis 2.16, when God commanded Adam not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was that a law? Yes, because it was something God had commanded. So anything in both Testaments where God is giving a command to do something it is what we call law. Okay, Gospel, on the other hand, refers to any place in both Testaments, old and new, where the promise of salvation by grace alone through faith alone is found. And we've done enough study in the Old Testament to see there's just as much gospel in the Old Testament as there is in the New Testament. Okay? You can think about it this way. Law is what I must do. Gospel is what Christ has already done for me. Okay? So the law tells us what we ought to do. And then leads us to despair for not meeting God's standard. Okay? And we'll talk about that in just a moment. The law tells us what we ought to do. The gospel tells us what God has already done for us in Christ, whereby He, Jesus, met those standards perfectly. Jesus died as our substitute. And by faith, He imputes or credits that righteousness to us. Okay? So those are the, that's the law-gospel distinction. So there's just as much law in the New Testament as there is in the Old Testament. Now, let me give you three types of law that are in the Old Testament. Three types of law. The first type of law is what we call civil law. So when you're reading through Leviticus, which is where everybody goes for their favorite Bible reading, right? I'm going to have my quiet time. I'm going to read through Leviticus. It's going to really warm my heart. So civil law are those judicial laws in respect to the civil government of Israel. So it talks about courts. It talks about lawsuits. It talks about elders. It talks about judges. It talks about contracts, punishment for crimes. You know, my favorite law is if two men are fighting and one woman comes up and grabs the man by the private parts, her hand has to be cut off. That's a law in the, in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that. Go back and read it. That's a civil law, okay? 
if, a, if, a, if, if you, like a manslaughter, like if your ox gets out of control and it goes around the corner and you hit a person and you commit involuntary manslaughter, you had to go to like a city of refuge. The, the civil laws that governed the nation of Israel, okay? For us, civil law would be like, don't run a stop sign or obey the speed limit. Okay, but there was also ceremonial law, okay? These were external solemn ordinances to be observed in the public worship of God under a theocratic nation state. Now, when I say theocratic nation state, Israel, who was the king of Israel? God. Okay, so there's been no other nation has had God as its king in the sense of, of, of having to obey the rules. Everybody in Israel had to obey all these rules. So like the washings, the priestly garments, the food laws, like don't eat shellfish and things like that. So that's the ceremonial law. So Israel as a nation was bound by civil law, ceremonial law, but there was a third type of law, the moral law. This was the spiritual, eternal, written with the hand of God, law that spans both not just binding on the nation of Israel, but binding on all people everywhere. Okay. So let me ask you a question before we even get to the Ten Commandments. What type of law is the Ten Commandments? Is it civil, is it ceremony, or is it moral? <laughs> Technically, it's moral. Okay? Because are you bound by the civil laws of Israel? No, you're bound by the civil laws of America. The laws of Israel are no longer around. Are you bound by the ceremonial laws of Israel? Anybody here clean the mildew out of their house and go, well, some of it, hopefully you do. And, you know, I ate at Red Lobster this week, and so I broke that law. I had shellfish, I had shrimp. Okay, are you bound by the ceremonial law? Are you bound by the moral law? Yes. Okay, so the moral law is the law that transcends all cultures. Okay? So there's three types of law. There's civil, ceremonial. Jesus fulfilled the civil law. Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. And Jesus actually fulfilled the moral law. But today as believers, we're only under the moral law of God. Now, you may say, okay, let's talk about the moral law here. There, there are three uses of the law. And when I say law, I'm specifically talking about God's moral law. And really specifically, how those are codified in the Ten Commandments. Okay, so three ways that the Ten Commandments or the moral law are used in the world today. Okay, so it's very important to get these distinctions. The first use of why God has given us the moral law is what we call general equity or civil use to govern nations. Now, let me explain what I mean by this. All people, even lost people, are to live under the moral law that governs nations because we're all created in the image of God and we have a general idea of justice, right and wrong, and have been given a conscience. So, anybody want to argue with thou shalt not kill being a good thing? So God has given us 
thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, all these laws to basically make society so it's not in anarchy. So even nations today have some sense of the moral law governing how they do things. Almost in every nation in the world, if you kill somebody, what's going to happen? You're going to get either arrested or tried if you steal, all, all, things like that. Okay, So just in general equity, just because people are created in the image of God, God has given the moral law in our conscience to make sure that the world stays sane. Okay, that there's, there's laws that govern nations. Okay. Now let's get more specific here. The second use of the law. Oh, therefore God has established his moral law to be used by governments to curb anarchy and to maintain justice and peace in society. That's basically what I said. Uh, number two. Uh, the pedagogical, that's a big word, or schoolmaster used to show us our sin. Now I want you to turn to Romans chapter 7 for a moment. Romans chapter 7, Paul tells us what the purpose of the law is to show us our sin. Okay? Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. Romans 7, 7 through 13. I'll wait till you guys all get there. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. And if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good, nor that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now what's Paul saying there? The law shows us what sin is and shows us how sinful it is. So the purpose of the law is to show you you're a sinner and you can't measure up to it. So I often ask this question. Anybody here obey the Ten Commandments all the time, 100% of the time, every single commandment, every day of your life? Nobody, right? So when you look at the commandments, they are like a mirror to show you that you are desperate, you are guilty, and you by no means can keep them. They basically expound sin in you. That's what Paul says. Look there at verse 13. He says, um, that second half, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So one of the roles of the Ten Commandments is to show you how sinful you are and the fact that you can't keep them. And, and what the Ten Commandments are supposed to do is they're supposed to drive you to despair. 
they are to drive you to your knees in guilt and shame. Not that you'll stay there, but so you'll what? Turn to Christ to forgive you of your sins. So the role of the law, Paul says, is when you look at the Ten Commandments and you think to yourself, okay, so I was going to show you guys a video. Um, yeah, let me show you. Well, I don't know if this video is working. Let me just kind of illustrate it for you, okay? I've illustrated this before. Let's take a person on the street that doesn't know Jesus, and you begin to ask them questions about the Ten Commandments. And so you go up to them and say, hey, um, I'll just pretend it's Scotty. You don't have to play along with me. Scotty, would you consider yourself to be a good person? What are most people on the planet are going to say when you ask them, hey, do you consider yourself to be a good person, Rico? Yeah. What are most people going to say? They're Unless they're axe murderers, what are they going to say? Yes. I'm a pretty good person. Okay, that's really good. I'm glad that you think you're a good person. Do you mind if I ask you some questions just to see how good you are? Well, sure. Okay, first question. Well, have you ever told a lie? What are they going to say? Yes, I have. What does that make you? No, a sinner. Okay, let's be more specific. That's going to make you're a liar. Okay, so, so okay, I'm a liar. Have you ever stolen anything before? Well, yeah, never robbed a bank, but I've stolen something from work. What does that make you? A thief. Have you ever committed adultery? Oh no, I've never committed adultery. I've been faithful to my wife. Yeah, have you ever lusted? Jesus says if you've lusted, you committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Uh, yeah, just the other day. Have you ever disobeyed your parents? Yeah. Have you ever coveted somebody else's belongings? Yeah. Okay, you just told me a few minutes ago you're a good person. But after I've asked you these questions, you've admitted to yourself that you're a lying, thieving, cheating, adulterer, that disobeys your parents and you covet. Okay, at that point, what are they thinking? I never knew that about myself. I thought I was pretty good. And I'm not telling them anything that they haven't already admitted. I'm not calling them that. They're admitting that. By your own admission, you're admitting that you don't live up to that law. Now, the next question you ask them is, based upon that standard, would you be innocent or guilty before God? What would they have to say? Guilty. If you're guilty, what do you deserve, heaven or hell? Hell. Does that concern you? Yes. Let me tell you the gospel. Okay. So the, the, the law gets very, very specific, not generic. Hey, we're all sinners. The law gets very specific to show us how specifically we fall short of God's glory and it's meant to see the exceeding sinfulness of sin, to see our guilt and shame, to drive us to our knees like a mirror, uh, just looking at ourselves saying, I desperately need a Savior. I cannot save myself. I cannot pull myself up by my bootstraps. I cannot do any good. I am guilty, guilty, guilty. I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. That's the role of the law. That's the pedagogical or the, the, the schoolmaster. Now, how do I get the word schoolmaster? Um, it comes from Galatians 3.24. So then the law was our guardian, our schoolmaster, our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Listen to what James says, James 2, 10 through 11. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. 
For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So even if you kept all nine, but like broke one, you're guilty of breaking all of it. So number one use of the law is what we call general equity in the sense that God gives us the law so nations can be governed by societal values so that people aren't just going crazy. Number two, the law is given to us to show us that we can't keep it. We can't earn our salvation. We are exceedingly sinful. We are specific sinners. It drives us to our knees in despair to cry out for Jesus to save us. Okay, what's the third use of the law? The third use of the law is the moral use as believers as a rule for living. This is where I need to go very slow to make sure you understand what we're saying and what we're not saying. The law requires that we worship God as our creator, the gospel that we worship him and through Christ only as our mediator. Okay. The law requires obedience. But the law does not give us the grace or the strength to obey. The gospel gives grace and strength to obey. The gospel and grace enables us to obey out of gratitude. So let me be very clear. As believers in Jesus Christ, we must still obey the Ten Commandments. Not so that we will be saved to earn it, but out of gratitude for what God has already done in saving us. Yes. What about the one commandment about keeping the Sabbath? When we get to the Sabbath, we'll talk about that. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to open that can of worms now because that's a controversial one. The fourth. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you in your power obey God's law? Are you required to obey God's law? Okay. Do you see a dichotomy there? Does God lower the requirements of the law? No. Can you meet those requirements? So what's the problem? What has to happen? When you're saved, what happens? God invades your heart. He changes your nature. He causes you to be born again, and He gives you the new grace and power and ability to obey. Not so you can earn that salvation, but out of gratitude for what God has already done in your salvation. Now, notice what God says in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. What in the world does it mean that God's going to circumcise your heart? It's a metaphorical way of saying God's going to take out that dead, stony heart and He's going to cut away all the impurity and give you the new heart that's going to be able. That new heart's going to now want to love God. Okay. Listen to the, new, the, the promise of the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, God gives the promise of the new covenant. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, it's a new covenant. 
not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the hand of Egypt, my covenant they broke. Okay, so this is going to be different than the covenant he made at Sinai. How is the new covenant going to be different? Well, here's what God says he's going to do. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. What's God going to do? I will put my law where? Within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So what does God promise to do? I'm going to do a work in the new birth to somehow put the ability for you to obey my law deep inside your heart so you have the grace and power and ability to do that. I'm going to write it on your heart. Ezekiel chapter 36, 26 and 27 says this. It's the same terminology or same, same idea. I will give you, this is God speaking, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How are you going to be able to walk in God's statutes and, and obey his rules? How will you be able to do that? Because God has taken out your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. He's put the Holy Spirit within you to give you the power to be able to do that. So God still expects us to obey His law, but the only way we can do that is through the Holy Spirit giving us the grace to be able to do that in salvation. And Paul addresses that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 3-6. through You show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone. What was written on tablets of stone? Ten Commandments. Where's this written? On the human heart. Tablets of stone. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What's Paul saying there? God has given you the Holy Spirit to live inside you, to give you the power to be able to obey. So we still ought to approach God's law as a perfect standard of what God's character is, an expression of His moral character, and we should desire to do it. As Christians, we should desire to obey. Psalm 119.32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. What comes first in that passage of Scripture? Doing the commandments or the changing of the heart? So the heart change comes first, and then what does he say? I will run. I will be excited. I will, I will diligently do that. So let's ask some questions before we dive into the Ten Commandments. What is the sum of the Ten Commandments? What's, what's the point of them? Why do we obey them? What's the heart of them? Deuteronomy 6, 4-5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So part of obeying the Ten Commandments is to show God we love Him. 
Jesus reiterates this in Mark chapter 12, 28 through 30. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What's the greatest commandment? Loving God with the totality of who we are. So why do we even have the Ten Commandments? It's ultimately as an expression of love to God. It's not just some set of rules that are archaic. Ultimately, the Ten Commandments are an expression of God's holy character, and we want to obey those because we love God. What did Jesus say about obedience? John 14, 20... Whoops. Let's go back. John 14, 23 through 24. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will what? Keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. What does Jesus say? <coughs> you love me when you keep my commandments. 1 John 5, 2 through 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and do what? Obey His commandments, for this is the love of God. What's the love of God? That we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. That's important, that last little thing. His commandments are not, what's burdensome mean? Difficult. Now, what's the thing? What does John, what does Jesus, what does the Bible say? You show love to God when you obey His commandments. And as a Christian who has the Holy Spirit living in you, those commandments are not burdensome. Why are they not burdensome? If you're a non-Christian, the Ten Commandments are burdensome, are they not? Because you can try to keep them and try to keep them and try to earn your favor with God and try to be good, and all it does is just crushes you and, and, and crushes you to guilt, realizing this is a burden. I, I can't live up to the standard. I can't do it. I'm in despair. I'm always trying to live up to the standard. I'm never going to live up to the standard. I'm in despair. That's burdensome. For the believer whose heart's been changed by the Holy Spirit, God now gives you the grace and the power and the ability and the love deep in your heart to obey so that it's not burdensome anymore. It's not burdensome. So the motivation to obey is our love for Jesus. Not, be very careful, not so that Jesus will love us back, but because He has already loved us in the gospel and given us the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower us to obey. All right. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I've got, I've got seven more pages of notes and we've only got ten minutes. So I think I want to stop there tonight because we're, we were going to jump into the preface to the Ten Commandments, but I think this is a good stopping place. So are there any questions, comments, or snide remarks before we head out? Dick. I still believe that uh, to live as a Christian requires uh, perseverance and it sometimes has a great deal of struggle. Hmm. Uh, it requires uh, 
commitment. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you have to spend time in prayer. You have to spend time in the Word. You have to spend time in fellowship mm -hmm. with other believers. Mm -hmm. You have to spend time in worship. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't come automatically. Oh. I mean, um, just because we're saved, we have a new heart, we have the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean we're going to walk in obedience. Right. So there, there's a lot of things that we have to do, and I think some people get confused and they say, well, that's works. We're saved by grace, not by works. And now you're asking me to do works, but that's not what I'm saying. Right. It's not, not at all. And Hebrews uh, says in the 12th chapter, he says, though we were sound, surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, <coughs> the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you not grow weary and lose heart in your struggle against mm. sin, Mm -hmm. You have not resisted to the point yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus is our example. And yeah. It wasn't easy. He yeah. went to the cross. Yeah. It was a struggle. Yeah. But he he resisted to the point with his death. Right. I mean, there was no Christ did not sin. Right. Well, I think that's a good point, Dick, because what, 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 I, what we're saying is, yeah, there could be a little misunderstanding. Just because we have a new heart and just because we've been regenerated and just because the Holy Spirit lives in us does not mean that now we're never going to struggle. Actually, you're going to struggle more. Let me say it this way. Non-Christians don't struggle with sin. Have you thought about that? Non-Christians don't struggle with sin. It's not a struggle for them. They just sin. For the Christian, it's a struggle, right? Because we know we shouldn't. And yes, we still have the Holy Spirit. But Paul tells us in Galatians, the spirit and the flesh are fighting against each other. And so we have the power. We have the grace. But that doesn't mean it's not going to be a struggle. So we obey not to earn salvation but out of gratitude for what God has done. Let me show you one last passage of Scripture real quick. Turn to Ephesians, because I think Ephesians chapter 2 gives you both truths together. Yeah, if you think living the Christian life is easy, you signed up for the wrong religion. Is it joyful? Absolutely. Does God give you peace and strength? Absolutely. But... Do you have to endure? Do you have to persevere to the end? Yes, but God's grace is sufficient. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Very famous passage of Scripture, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. So verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. So how are you saved? Grace, through faith. This is not your own doing. It's something you do, something you earned. What is it? It's a gift of God, not a result of. 
So you're not saved by works. You're not saved by obedience. You're not saved by doing the Ten Commandments so that no one may boast. So your salvation from first to last is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's a free gift of salvation. But look at verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What comes first in this passage of Scripture, good works or grace? Grace comes first, and then from grace flows the good works. What happens if you get the, the, they get reversed? Do the good works save you? Grace saves you to enable to obey God in those good works. Yes, yes, Dick. Yes. Because we cannot obey God's commandments as an unbeliever. Nope. When we do obey God, it is an evidence of His work in our lives. Exactly. So the praise, the glory, the thanksgiving is to God. Yep. Turn over one book, and I'll give you a verse that supports what Dick's saying. Go to Philippians. Chapter 2, 12 and 13. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. This is the whole relationship between grace and God's, and God's working in us. So, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always what? Obeyed. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, not work for, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, if all we had was verse 12, it would be very, very difficult because it would make it sound like, okay, it's all up to you. You better work it out. You better struggle. You, you better get your act together. But look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And I've said this before, and this is what we'll close on tonight. There are two things that you did not have as a non-Christian. As a lost person, there are two things you did not have. You did not have the ability to please or worship or obey God, and you did not have the desire. You didn't want to, and you didn't have the can-do, okay? You can't, you didn't want to, and you couldn't because of your sin. But once you become a Christian, once the Holy Spirit invades your heart, once God changes you from the inside out, God renews you and gives you these two things. So as a Christian, now you have the ability and you have the desire. You have the can-do and you have the want-to. So you now desire to obey and please Jesus and you now have the power to do it, whereas before you didn't. So God gives you the desire, and God gives you the power, and at the end of the day, if there's any obedience, if there's any fruit, if there's any growth, who gets the credit? God, because God worked in you for those good works. You did the good works, but God worked in you to give you the desire and ability to do what God called you to do.